You guys are raucous today. I kind of like it. I mean that in a really good way. I promised my wife two weeks ago to, uh, to never mis- mention or even hint at Michigan again uh, from up front here. So, But uh, <laughs> he kind of took care of that. Anyway, hey, um, Sundays like this, I'll just give you, let you into uh, the world of a pastor, is we, we feel extra pressure um, to kind of make this like a Super Bowl. And it's one of the things that our team talks about a lot as we approach a Sunday, is that it's just another Sunday. Um, and, and even today, in our minds, is not the Super Bowl. Uh, because the resurrection is not even... It's far worth just celebrating once a year. It is something that every blood-bought follower of Christ, every day ought to be Easter. Um, And so in that sense, are you guys okay with today just being another day? And we're going to continue our our journey through the life of Paul? Okay, let's do it. I didn't get an amen to that, but I know you're with me. (laughs) All right, come on. Um, And... We've been looking at the life of Paul, and last week, if you were here, Paul, actually the last two weeks, we've looked at how Paul finally makes it to this Roman province of Asia that he so badly wants to get to, because it's probably the most prestigious uh, province in the Roman Empire, and he goes right to the capital city, to Ephesus, uh, which is the third largest city uh, of the Roman Empire. It's this cosmopolitan, hugely international city. And Paul moves right into the heart of the city, sets up shop uh, on Main Street at Tyrannus Hall, and he's there for three years. And there's this amazing uh, statement um, in Acts 19 to describe what happened when he was there. It says that everyone in the province of Asia heard the good news of Jesus. I, just, I, I want that to be true. Where we set up shop that it could be said that everyone in Grand Rapids heard the good news of Jesus. And, and Paul's going to then leave Ephesus and, and this church is going to be formed there and he's going to, uh, years later, write a letter to that church and we have the letter that he writes to this church in our Bibles we call it Ephesians. It's a letter to this church in, in Ephesus. This morning, we're going to look at the first part of this letter. So turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. If you have a Bible like mine, uh, 946 is the page number. And uh, let's stand for the reading of God's word, if you can. I'm just going to warn you right now, I'm going to lose you, okay? I'm going to lose you because every one of these clauses that we're going to read is worthy to just reflect on uh, for minutes to hours. And so, but it's okay. Praise be, Baruch Hashem, if Paul was talking in Hebrew, which is uh, bless the name, bless the name. Bless the name of God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us, In Christ, before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for the adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In Christ, we have redemption through his blood, 
the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with, the, with his wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring all things together in heaven and on earth under Christ. For in Christ, we are also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who was a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. This is his word. You can be seated. So these verses that we uh, read, uh, I, I would conclude that we just read the greatest sentence maybe in the whole Bible. I didn't, and I did not misspeak there. <laughs> That's one sentence. And this gets you into Paul and his mind. Uh, I mean, he has all these clause and points, uh, subpoints, prepositional phrases, uh, but verses 3 to 14 is one sentence. In the original language, it's also comprised of 202 words, and obviously our translation of it, uh, we couldn't, they couldn't do that, put it in one sentence. But really, I think what Paul is doing in this one sentence is he is summing up the entire Bible. If you want to know what the Bible is about, it's about God, because God is the subject of this sentence. And then if you go to verse, uh, verse 9, um, you have the word purposed, God purposed, this mystery which God purposed. You can circle purposed. We can do that in our Bibles. Verse 11, uh, you have plan, his plan, um, who works everything according, again, to his purpose and his will. So we don't live in a world that's random, that just happens to happen. We live in a world made by God in which God has a plan. It's a plan that was actually established before the creation of the world. It's a plan that God has been perfectly executing from the very beginning. It's a plan specifically for you. It's a plan for every square inch of the universe that God has made. God's working everything out according to his plan and everything is in his plan. That's what Paul is saying in this one sentence. So what is God's plan for you, for us? What's God's plan for, for the whole world? Well, first it's in verse three, it's to bless. Blessed be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing which is in Christ. Now, when I say the word bless, it's like uh, already that, that, that everything's kind of just getting lame because 
blessed is a lame word in our, in our usage. About the only time we use the word blessed is if someone would sneeze. So does someone want to sneeze right now? No, you can't do that. Um, but if you did, someone might just yell out, bless you, because that's kind of what the word means. But in Greek, the word in the Greek here is, is eulogy. It's used three times in verse three. And, and eulogy literally means good words or to speak well of. It's, it's, it's what we do at funerals after a person's life. We, we eulogize them. We, we, we speak well of that person. We, we bless them. And, and this word goes all the way back really to the patriarchs because uh, uh, in the beginning of the story, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, we, we read that they would gather their sons around them and, and they would bless them. They, they were eulogizing them. They're, they're speaking uh, grand visions of, of, of who they are, of, of who God made them to be, um, visions that, that, that exalt them. And I know this right now. I know that every heart in this room is desperate for eulogy. We are, we, we, we are desperate for the most significant people in our lives, namely our, our parents, our fathers, uh, to, to, to speak well words over us. Words like, Rod, you're awesome. Rod, this is who God made you to be. This is, this is why you're awesome, how you're awesome. And I used to apologize, like, to my own heart, like, Rod, why do you feel the need to have this? Like, and my dad was so good at it, and I loved it every time that, that he would bless me, that, that he would eulogize me. I mean, this is what Jewish fathers uh, do every Sabbath uh, around the meal, uh, the time in the meal, they'll just stop and, and they'll bless mom, their wife, and then all the children, they'll take time blessing each one. And, and our hearts crave this. Our hearts were made in such a way where, where, where we need this. Because we were made for our father. And I'm not talking right now about our earthly father. I, I am talking about our heavenly father. We, all of us in this room, whether you know it or not, you crave his eulogy. You crave his blessing. And what's so cool is that God sets in motion his whole plan to heal and redeem the world by probably speaking into humanity's greatest wound by saying to Abraham, Abraham, I am going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. And then when you look at the, 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 the Old Testament or the Hebrew nuanced uh, meaning of this word, it's, it's, it's the word baruch. And uh, baruch uh, literally means to bend one's knee. Um, it, it, it's for one to make themselves as small as possible to make the other person great. And I get that when, when he starts this sentence, uh, bless God, bend the knee to God because he is so great. But where this gets confusing for me is that God says, no, I'm, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bend my knee to you, Abraham. I'm going to make myself small to make you great. And think about how God 
in Christ, because verse three is, is, is the fulfillment of God's plan to bless, and it's, it's in Christ, how, how God's eulogy comes to us in Christ, how, how God bends the knee to us in Christ, how he makes himself so small to make us great. Listen, when you know this, I mean, I'm not just saying this as a proposition in your brain, but when the penny drops and, and this hits your heart, this is a game changer. It's a life changer for me to know that when that God eulogizes me in Christ, that he speaks blessing over me. Um, it's not far-fetched because I, I have to hear this all the time. I love you. I delight in you. There's no one like you. I mean, these are the things that God says to us in Christ. Second, God's plan is, is to adopt. Look at verse five. It's to bless, it's to adopt. He has predestined us for the adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and his will. Now, just to bring you back to it, to a city like Ephesus, I mean, first century Ephesus would make uh, places like Vegas and Bourbon Street look like nunneries. Um, I'm not kidding you, because everywhere you would turn in a place like ancient Ephesus, um, there was sex of some form, of some version. Uh, the temples were pretty much brothels, and Archaeologists have even uncovered one of the biggest brothels in the Roman Empire right in the heart of the city. I mean, uh, and you have to understand that a, um, a sexual lifestyle that the ancient lived, minus the forms of birth control, produced a ton of unwanted babies. A ton of them. Add to this that in a Roman family, every time a child was born, it almost immediately would be brought into the Roman father. The Roman father would look at it and he would either take it into his arms or he could look at it, study it, and turn its back to it. And that moment, that child would be discarded. And you're like, why would a, a, a Roman father do that? Well, if the child had a deformity or uh, maybe the father so badly needed a son and, 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 and it's a daughter, and all of these unwanted babies would be brought to the garbage uh, dump outside the city. Now, it's on record that there were two groups of people that would go to these garbage dumps. The first group of people were slave traders. I mean, it was a great place. You could go, you, you could pick over uh, these unwanted babies and take in the ones that you thought were the best, and then you'd raise them up with the purpose of selling them. Uh, the main purpose in that world, of course, was to traffic them when they came of age or they didn't come of age. The other group of people who went to these garbage dumps to listen for these cries of these unwanted babies were those Christians. And they would bring those babies in irrespective of any kind of deformity and, and, and they would bring them into their families as sons and daughters. And if you want to know, again, how Christianity subverted Rome, how it toppled it, how it deposed of it, it's things like this. Now, the Bible teaches that we are all orphans. 
that we are all were estranged from our Father. When, when, when you go to a place like Ezekiel 16, uh, it even uses this imagery of, of how we were all kind of left out there, um, even our umbilical cords still attached to us, uh, left out in the dump to die. But God came and he saw us and he swooped us in his arms and he brought us into, into his family. And listen, don't think today that you picked God. God picked you. I mean, like our text says, God predestined us for adoption. God picked us. And, and it wasn't even out of obligation. It wasn't because it was something he was supposed to do because the text says, but according to his pleasure. Many years ago, uh, when I was a youth pastor, I would take uh, our, our students on mission trips and the place that we went one year was, was to Romania. And one of the things that we did uh, during the whole week is we worked in, in an orphanage there. And over the course of the week, one of the older kids who is um, a teenager, uh, just he and I connected. And, and when it was just about time for us to say goodbye, he pulled me aside and he said, I mean, I'll never forget this. He said, Rod, no one will ever pick me. I, I knew exactly, I knew the longing of his heart. Do you know that long before we ever came into the world that God was thinking of us, that God had already set his affection on us, that God picked us, and he picked us so that we could belong to his family, so that we could take on his family name? Another game changer. And that goes into our hearts. Now, there's still even, I think, more in Paul's uh, thinking as he's communicating this to first century Christians in Ephesus because the Romans actually did practice adoption, but they didn't do it to raise children the way we do it. They did it because they needed an heir. And, and an heir was something that uh, at some point in the game would be the inheritor of that family estate. And so a father might look at his situation and either realize, one, I don't have any sons, or two, uh, the son or sons that I do have are, are, are kind of burnouts and incapable of, of, of taking on my name, carrying it on, and, and my estate. So then they would take on an heir. And the moment uh, that son was adopted into the family. Not only did he receive the father's last name, but he also took on the father's first name, and he instantly had the status uh, of, of firstborn son. And then the rest of his life, he was prepared so that one day his father would hand over the whole estate to him, the whole inheritance. And see, Paul's picking up on this because in verse 14, look at what Paul says. There's an inheritance. In other words, God doesn't just adopt us into his family as, as sons and daughters, but he brings us in at, with the status of, of firstborn sons. And, and we are going to be heirs of God's inheritance. Now, what is God's inheritance? It's everything that God can give to us. 
I mean, that's mind-boggling to think about. Things that come to my mind are, are, are new life, new heart, a new body, life forever. Jesus said the meek will inherit the earth, that, that someday the renewed heavens and the renewed earth are, are, are going to be given to us. And see, this is why a Christian is set free from needing to like grab for the gusto now and to take as much as they can from this short, measly life. It's, it's, it's all coming to us which is why now we don't have to have it. We can give what God has, has given to us to give it to others to help them. So God's plan is to bless. God's plan is to adopt. It keeps going. Look at verse seven. God's plan is to redeem. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Now, redeem has both a New Testament meaning and, and an Old Testament meaning. In the, in the New Testament, redeem means to ransom something, uh, literally to buy it back. It, it's a word that, that came out of the slave market and slavery because it most literally means to unchain someone. Now, if you were a slave, uh, you, you would probably think that that will never happen to me because the price of of, of redemption was so high in that day, but if someone came along and paid the ransom price, literally your chains would fall off and you'd be free. You'd be redeemed. Now, when we, we hear stuff like this, we think to ourselves, wow, it's so good that we don't live in a culture like that, that, that we're so far from that. Um, I mean, we are a culture today that prides itself on, on freedom. But listen to me. Think about all the things that have power over us. Right now. Because here's the fact. If we've been redeemed, that means we were once slaves. Slaves to what, you say? Well, well, well there are lots of things that exercise power over us, things that can master us. Um, things that we offer ourselves to, offer our lives to, we offer our bodies to these things, we offer our times to, time to these things, our hearts. Think about all the things that we can be slaves to. We're slaves to our stuff. We're slaves to our appearance. We're slaves to what people think about us. We're slaves to approval. We're slaves to pleasure. We're a slave to our desires. We're a slave to food. We're a slave to sport. We're slaves to sex. We're, we're slaves to ourselves. We're slaves to our past. We're slaves to our emotions. We're slaves to our screens. And here's the deal. You have to ask, why, what's the why behind that what? Because none of us want to be a slave to anything. It's because we all need to live for something. We all need to know that we matter. We all need to know that, we, that we're worth something, that we're valuable. And see, whatever it is that we turn to other than God, that thing or that person is going to have a mastery over us. And here's the deal. If God is not our true master, 
Or I'll put it this way. If we're not adopted, where we know that we are a child of the king, we will be slaves to something. Are you adopted? Are you a slave? Now, redeem in the Old Testament is, is, is more a word that's connected to how they did family because the families were very large. Um, they consisted of aunts and uncles, cousins, and all doing life in close proximity and interdependence with, with one another. And over this whole huge clan of people would be the great grandpa or the, the, the patriarch, as they would say. And it was the patriarch's responsibility to use the resources that were all given to him by each family member to take care of every single one of the needs of the household. And if by chance a family member would lose a piece of property or one of them would go bankrupt or even worse, if one of them would be marginalized in any sort of way from the, from the household, it would be the patriarch's responsibility to do whatever it took to, to recoup those losses or to restore that member back to the family. So to be redeemed is, is, is to be brought home. It's, it's when for whatever reason you're taken away from home or you're marginalized from home and, and the patriarch doing whatever it takes, even if it costs him everything to bring you back in. That's redeem. And think about how God, and that's what Paul is getting at in verse seven, has redeemed us through Christ, how Christ came across all worlds to find us, to show us the face of the Father, to live the life that we were supposed to live as sons and daughters, to die the death that we deserve to die for rejecting our Father, and then providing the only way back to the Father. He redeems us. He redeems us because he loves us. It says it again, for his pleasure. And here's the deal. We are, our problem is more than that we're slaves. Our problem is, is, is deeper. It's, it's that we've lost home. And we're doing everything like the prodigal to, to, to take our resources and, 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 and to somehow make this world feel like home and, and, and heal the homesickness of our heart. But at some point in time, we're going to realize that we weren't made for this world and this world will never be home because we've been made for our father and to be in his arms. And Jesus did everything it took to bring us back home. God's plan is to bless, <laughs> to adopt, to redeem. The sermon could end, couldn't it? But as good as this is, not the main point of this long sentence. The main point of this sent sentence is verse 10, which is to bring all things together under Christ. 
So if you want to know what God's ultimate plan for you is, what God's ultimate plan for the world is, um, why God created the world, why God blesses, why God adopts, why he redeems, it's to bring all things together, heaven and on earth, in Christ. I like it that Paul says this is a mystery. But to bring together, to bring together under Christ, I mean, think about our world right now. Everything's falling apart. And this isn't just unique to our time right now. I mean, this is the way it, it, it's all, always been. Think about your life. As you get older, think about your health. <laughs> it's all falling apart. I mean, think about uh, the, the, the second law of, of thermodynamics. It states that everything is moving to a state of chaos or decay. And I mean, right now, if you took the chicken that you have in your oven that you're all going to enjoy uh, possibly for Easter dinner today, and instead just took that chicken and just placed it on the table, and you just left it there, uh, think about that chicken two days from now. What would it be? What would that chicken be two weeks from now? How about two months? Now you might have to leave the house because it'd be literally a hazard. That's our world. And, and now you have to ask, well, why is our world this way? And God also explains that. The best place is in Genesis 3 because what, what, what God is telling us there is that when our relationship with God fell apart, then everything else fell apart. Our relationship with each other, our relationship with creation, creation's relationship with us, even our relationship to our own self, it fell apart. I can't tell you how many times I, I, I've had someone say to me, um, I just need to get in touch with myself. I, I need to get to know myself. Like that just speaks to, to all the disarray even that's going on within a single person. Because we can't possibly in touch with ourselves if we're not in touch with God. We can't know ourselves if we don't know God. And here we are. Now, this translation, uh, bring together, which is, is, is being done in Christ, um, a, a, another translation that might be even uh, more accurate to that actual word is to be summed up. That everything is going to be summed up in Christ. In fact, some of your translations uh, actually say it that way. And even just stop and think about what that might mean, that everything in your life will someday be summed up in Christ. That someday Christ will make sense of everything. That somehow his life will make sense of your life, that his story will make sense of your story. And I think like every fifth movie that comes out is just flirting with, with the idea that this somehow could be true apart from Christ, that somehow um, our story could be rewritten, that if we could somehow even go back in time, right now I'm thinking of the, the cult classic, that, that movie, that first 
probably one of the first movies I ever watched, uh, Back to the Future. I mean, it, it, it tantalizes us with, with this whole idea that if we could all somehow just go back and redo parts of our past, it would make our present and our, and our future hopeful. What our text tells us is that Christ actually can retell our story. He will retell our story in, in such a way where every loss, every tragedy is now all of a sudden going to make sense in the light of Christ and not just make sense, but somehow all of it is gonna be stunningly glorious. And somehow this is also going to include all of our choices, that our, that our choices will matter and our choices will factor into this. But at the end of the day, our choices aren't the end all or the be all because even if we make bad choices, that even that will be summed up in Christ. And that his plan is somehow orchestrating everything, that it's working, it's purposing all things, as Romans 8, 28 says, for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Now listen, we couldn't have an Easter Sunday without me bringing up Lord of the Rings, right? Um, in the last book, the story kind of reaches this, this, this absolute low point, this, this bleak, despairing moment when it, when it looks like everything is lost, Sam Wise actually falls unconscious, but then he wakes up and he's thinking everything's been lost, but all his friends are around him. He realizes, oh my goodness. And he, he, he says to Gandalf, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. And then he says what only Sam Wise would say. He goes, yeah, I even thought my own self was dead. But then that inquisitive hobbit heart of his dares ask a question that every single one of us want to ask. Gandalf, does this mean that everything's sad is going to come untrue? I mean, do we even dare even flirt with that question? That everything sad would become untrue. And Paul's answer here in Ephesians 1 verse 10 is a resounding yes to that question because it, he is saying that when everything is summed up in Christ, that, that heaven and earth literally will, will be brought under Christ. There's going to be a full restoration of the life we lost, uh, of the bodies that we've lost, of the homes that we've lost. Um, it's going to be restored. It's going to be renewed, resurrected returned in a way that will just be <sighs> stunning. And if you're wondering, like, how can Paul, like, just say, say this? Is this just pie in the sky? No, it's because God already did this once. 2,000 years ago, one Sunday morning, the story reaches its bleakest, most despairing point 
and two disciples are walking along this road to Emmaus, thinking that the Romans had won, that Christ has lost, that it's all over, it's all hopeless, and they don't even know that they're walking with Christ himself, who has just turned the tables on despair, on losing, on losing things that we love. He's turned the tables on death itself, and beginning with the prophets, all the way, or with Moses going all the way through the prophets, he retells the whole story in light of the resurrection. And he's going to do it again. And he's going to, all of history is going to be retold to the resurrection. (laughs) It's spring and summer's coming. And I'll tell you, it's, it, it's not just a cosmic reality, but, but it's so personal. He's going to rewrite our story. I mean, think about that story Jesus tells about the prodigal son, where he just makes a mess of his life. He squanders everything, his money, his life, his relationship with his father. And all of a sudden, he comes to his senses. He realizes what he's done. And he's like, maybe I can just go home and be a slave in my father's house. And as he approaches his father, his father retells his story. You're not a slave. My son. My son. In that moment, he gets his life back. And the father says, everything that I've owned, it's yours. Or think about the the, the story of Joseph when, when... I mean, the story of of God's little family at that moment reached such a a low point, I mean, to the point where they have to go all the way to Egypt just to get enough food to survive, and they come back to to Jacob, the father, and they say, okay, we have the grain, but Simeon is no more. And and Jacob says, uh, he says, oh, Joseph is no more. I've lost him. He says, now Simeon is no more. I've lost him. And then he says something that we've all said before. He says, everything is against me. Yeah, what Jacob doesn't know at that moment is that God is literally moving heaven and earth for Jacob, that he is orchestrating everything, even all the evil that is being imparted upon them, all for good. Because God has a plan. His plan is Christ. And in Christ and through Christ, it's to bless us, it's to adopt us, it's to redeem us. And and one day, all the things that have fallen apart and and, and have been broken away and torn out of us are all going to be put together on Christ. And and everything sad is going to become untrue. I want to say, are you serious? It's almost too good to be true, but it is true. Do you trust him? Because there's, there, there's one thing that this whole text and, and all that it promises um, assumes or presumes, it presumes that you are in him. I mean, I counted it up at least 11 times in this one uh, text. Paul talks about being in Christ. 
And what does it mean to be in Christ? It's, 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 it's branches in a vine. It's, it's intimacy between a husband and wife. These are the images that the Bible uses to, to talk about this, this reality of, of, of being in Christ. And, and, and when we're in Christ, his death becomes our death. His resurrection is our resurrection. His glory is our glory. His righteousness is our righteousness. His past is our past. His future is our future. Everything that is Christ is now ours. And if you're here thinking that, I get that just by going to church or, or believing the right things or knowing the right things or by being a good person, you're wrong. The way you get this is by being in him. That's why we get baptized because baptism is an image that we're not just believing facts about him, but we are most literally trusting him enough to place our whole life in him, buried in his death and raised to new life in his resurrection. Are you in him? It's as simple as us just placing our life in him, trusting him enough, surrendering everything that we have. I'll tell you why we can trust him. Because when you stop and even think about how he's going to put everything back together. He had to be so totally pulled apart, broken into pieces, so we could be made whole. He loves us. Let's pray. And God, I'm glad that Paul calls this a mystery because it is a mystery and there's so much for us to wrap our minds around. But God... May we not doodle in the trivial things of this world. God, when there is something this massive, awesome, stunningly glorious reality that you are pushing towards us for us to embrace. And maybe this is the point, God, in the gathering where as we recognize that you have this most incredible plan for the world, the most incredible plan for our lives, where free will now starts to also step in and we make choices. We say, I want that. I need that. I need a father like that. I need a family like that. God, we pray this, that we would pray, place our life in you, Jesus, all of it, in your name, amen.